Section two of The Jolly Parisians and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Jolly Parisians by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter two. Salon and Theatre. This afternoon I again saw the two ladies at the art salon, which opened today. I confess that I knew I would be likely to meet them there, and that I would have great difficulty in giving an opinion of the three or four thousand pictures in front of which I promenaded for four hours. Yesterday Felix offered to call for me towards noon. We were to breakfast at a restaurant on the Champs-Élysées, and then go to the salon. I have thought a great deal since the Countess's soiree, but I admit that that has not brightened up my ideas much. What a strange society is this Parisian society, at once so polished and corrupt. I am not a rigid moralist. Still, I was none the less shocked at the idea of the enormities which I heard men talking to each other about in the corners of my aunt's salon. According to the scandalous chatter, exchanged in whispers, more than half the ladies there were no better than they should be, and there was, beneath the urbanity of conversation and manners, a brutality of valuation which degraded all of them, the mothers as well as the daughters, soiling the purest quite as much as the most compromised. How was one to discover the truth amid these risky tales, these affirmations of the first who came along, deciding the virtue or the shamelessness of a woman? I thought at first, in spite of what my father had said on the subject, that my aunt received very villainous company. But Felix claimed that it was the same way in almost all the Paris salons, the most severe hostesses themselves were forced to show toleration under penalty of having their salons deserted. The effects of my first shock having passed away, I found myself only desirous of profiting by the easily obtained pleasures, by the enjoyments offered with such bewildering grace. For four days I have been unable to awake in the morning, in my little apartment on the Rue Lafitte, without thinking of Louise and Bertha, as I familiarly called them. A singular phenomenon had been produced within me. I had finished by mixing them together. I was now certain that Felix was really Bertha's slave, but that did not wound me. Quite to the contrary, I looked upon it as an encouragement, as proof positive that I had a chance. I, therefore, associated them together, since they had accepted the devotion of others, why should they not accept mine? This was the constant subject of a delicious reverie at my hour of rising. I lingered in bed enjoying the warmth of the covers and turning over twenty times with the delightful laziness of the limbs. And I avoided getting down to anything precise, for it was agreeable to me to remain in doubt as to the denouement which I incessantly arranged to suit myself. I could thus be nice about the circumstances destined some day to bring about the offer of my homage to Bertha or Louise. I did not even wish to know which. Finally, I arose, with the absolute conviction that I had but to choose in order to make one or the other the idol of my life. When we entered the first hall of the exposition of painting, I was surprised at the enormous crowd which was stifling there. Diable, muttered Felix, we are a little late. We'll have to elbow our way. It was a very mixed throng, made up of artists, tradesmen, and people of society. Amid ill-brushed, pale tots, and dark coats were light-hued toilettes, those spring toilettes so gay in Paris, with their delicate silks and bright trimmings. 
and I was particularly delighted with the calm assurance of the ladies, pushing through the thickest of the groups, without bothering themselves about their trains, the floods of lace of which always ultimately got through too. They went thus from one picture to another, at the pace at which they would have traversed their own salons. None but the Parisian ladies preserved the serenity of a goddess amid popular throngs, as if the words they hear and the context they undergo cannot reach and soil them. For an instant I glanced after a lady who, Felix told me, was the Duchess of A. She was accompanied by her two daughters, aged from sixteen to eighteen years, and all three looked without wincing at Lida, while behind them a lot of young artists merrily chatted about the picture in very free terms. Felix made his way into the halls on the left, a range of huge square rooms where the crowd was less compact. A white light fell from the skylights of the ceilings, a hard light, which canvas curtains sifted, but the dust raised by the trampling of the people floated like a light smoke above the swell of heads. The ladies had to be handsome, indeed, to resist this light, this uniform tone, which the pictures on the four sides of the walls stained violently. There it was an extraordinary medley of colors, of reds, yellows, and blues, which jarred, a whole rainbow riot in the glistening gold of the frames, it began to grow very warm. Bald gentlemen, with polished craniums, walked about, panting, their hats in their hands. All the visitors were looking upwards. There was a crush in front of certain canvases. Currents were produced. People pushed. It was a helter-skelter rush of a let-loose human flock through the palace. And one heard incessantly the continuous roll of feet upon the floors, which was accompanied by the hollow and prolonged noise of the people, murmuring like the sea. Ah, said Felix to me, there's the great picture that's so much talked about. Five rows of persons were contemplating the great picture. There were ladies with eyeglasses, artists making wicked comments in low tones, and a tall, thin gentleman taking notes. But I scarcely looked. I had just perceived, in a neighboring hall, leaning on the railing in front of the wainscot, two ladies who were curiously examining a small picture. It was at first but a flash. Beneath the rims of hats I saw thick black tresses and a confusion of blonde locks. Then the vision was swept away. A flood of people, of swaying heads, swallowed up the two ladies. But I could have sworn to them. A few paces off, between the incessantly moving heads, I again found now the blonde locks, then the black tresses. I said nothing to Felix. I contented myself with leading him into the neighboring hall, maneuvering so that he appeared to be the first to recognize the ladies. Had he seen them as well as I? I thought so, for he cast at me a sidelong glance of cunning irony. "'Ah, what a fortunate meeting!' he exclaimed as he bowed to them. The ladies had turned and were smiling. I awaited the result of this second interview. It was decisive. Madame Nijon completely upset me with a mere glance of her black eyes, while I seemed to have found a friend in Madame Gaucherod. This time it was a stroke of lightning. She wore a small yellow hat, covered with a spray of glycina, and her dress was of mauve silk, trimmed with straw-colored satin, a toilette at once very gaudy and very delicate. But I did not dissect her until later, for, at first sight, she appeared to me like a sun, as if she created light around her. Meanwhile Felix was chatting. "'There's nothing striking here,' said he. "'At least I haven't seen anything yet. Mon Dieu, declared Bertha, it's the same as it is every year. 
then turning towards the wainscot take a look at this little picture which louise has discovered the dress is a success madame de rochetel had one exactly like it at the last elise ball yes murmured louise only it had a square neck she again studied the little canvas which represented a lady in a boudoir standing before a mantelpiece and reading a letter the painting seemed to me very mediocre but i felt myself fully in sympathy with the painter where is he now demanded bertha searching around her he loses us every ten steps she spoke of her husband gaucherod is down there tranquilly replied felix who saw everybody he is looking at that big sugar christ nailed to a gingerbread cross in fact the husband with a peaceful and disinterested air was making the tour of the halls on his own account his hands behind his back when he saw us he came to shake hands with us and he said with a gay air have you noticed there is a christ down there of a truly remarkable religious feeling the ladies had resumed walking we followed them with gaucherod the husband's presence authorized us to accompany them monsieur nijon was mentioned he would come without a doubt if he got away soon enough from a commission in which he was to make known the opinion of the government on a question of special importance gaucherod took possession of me and overwhelmed me with friendly attentions this bored me for i was compelled to reply felix smiled giving me a slight push on the elbow but i was unable to understand and he profited by my occupation of the big man to walk on ahead with the ladies i caught fragments of the conversation then you are going this evening to the varieties yes i have secured a beige noir they say the play is comical i shall take you along louise oh i wish it and further on well the season's over this opening of the salon is the final parisian solemnity you forget the races so i do i want to attend the Masson Lafitte races i've been told that they're very nice during this time gaucherod was talking to me of la boquette a superb property he said the value of which my father had doubled i realized that he was full of flattery but i did not listen to him much stirred to the depths of my being every time that louise on stopping suddenly in front of a picture touched me with her long train her white neck under her black hair was as delicate as that of a baby but she kept up her hoydenish behavior which jarred upon me a little she was much bowed to and she laughed attracting people's attention by her outbursts of gaiety and the swift movements of her skirts two or three times she turned around and gazed at me fixedly i walked as if in a dream i cannot say how many hours i followed her in this manner stunned by gaucherod's talk blinded by the leagues of pictures which spread out to the right and to the left i only realized that towards the close the dust of the halls got into my mouth and that i felt horribly fatigued while the ladies remained fresh and smiling at six o'clock felix took me off to dine when we were at dessert he said suddenly to me i'm very much obliged to you what for i demanded greatly surprised why for your delicacy in not paying court to madame gaucherod so you prefer brunettes eh i could not prevent blushing he hastened to add i don't want any of your confidences on the contrary you must have noticed that i refrained from interfering in my opinion one ought to go through his apprenticeship to life alone he did not laugh now he was serious and friendly then you think it's possible for her to have some regard for me i said without daring to name louise i he replied i don't know a thing about it 
Do whatever you like and see how matters pan out. I regarded that as an encouragement. Felix had resumed his ironical tone, and gaily, in his joking way, he claimed that Gaucherod would have preferred to see me offer my homage to his better half. Oh, you don't know the worthy man. You didn't understand why he lavished so much attention on you. His uncle's influence is declining in your aggrandizement, and, if he were obliged to present himself again before his electors, he would be delighted to be able to count on your father. Dame, I am afraid of the moment when you can be useful to him, as you will readily understand. As for me, he has now used me up. How abominable! I exclaimed. Why abominable? resumed he, with such a tranquil air that I could not tell whether he was mocking me or not. When a wife must have gentlemen friends, they ought to be useful to the family. On quitting the table, Felix spoke of going to the varieties. I had seen the play two evenings before, but I told a white lie. I expressed a strong desire to see the piece. And what a charming evening! Bertha and Louise were in a bagnoire, very near our fauteuils. By turning my head I could follow upon Louise's face the pleasure she took in the actor's drolleries. I had thought these drolleries stupid two nights previously, but they no longer bored me. On the contrary, I enjoyed them, because they seemed to me to establish a sort of gallant complicity between Louise and myself. The piece was very gay, and she laughed particularly at the risky speeches. The fact that she was in a bagnoire sufficed to make it an allowable jollification. When our eyes met in the midst of a burst of laughter, she did not lower her head. I thought that a more refined perversion could not be found. I said to myself that three hours spent thus, in this frolicsome communion, would greatly advance my affairs. But the whole audience was amused. Many ladies in the balcony did not even use their fans. During an entre-acte, we called upon the ladies. Gaucherod had just gone out, so there was room for us to sit down. The bagnoire was dark, and Louise was beside me. She gave her skirts a shake, and they covered my knees. I carried away with me the sensation of this contact, like a first mute avowal which linked us together. End of section 2